Touch me to my finger, lost into my singing. Heart like New Orleans and cars be crew and jeans. Yeah, not awakened, sterile on a vacant. Living in conditions of the modern matrix. Only paying rounds on a proper naked. Only point I made with the bullet was a paper. Ain't here to fight some dude to fuck a fan with a spouse. Rather lights on me to burn it down with the house. Get your heart from the groove on account of the bounce. And the galactic tongue cruise up or down on a couch. Status never mattered, ever acted with a luck. Christine, I never just let yourself go. Matter pressure ran into but that is better left. Christine, track a record to let your own know. Ink studs, and my guest this week is Scott McLeod. Uh, Scott's probably one of the most recognizable names in comics uh, with his understanding comics, making comics, and reinventing comics, as well as uh, Zot and his, the Abraham. Oh, God, what was the full name of the Abraham Lincoln book? <laughs> we, we, the full name is The Book That We Shall Not. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> 
was the new adventures of abraham lincoln there we go uh, uh but scott's new book which we're here to discuss not the abraham lincoln book is the sculptor uh out in february um from first second books and uh it's uh 500 pages nearly it's nearly. like 496 why'd you stop short <laughs> Actually, I had to. There was there was a moment of panic where it looked like I might go over, and I, I was told in no uncertain terms by my agent that that would like throw off the balance of the universe, and you know the thing would be too expensive to print or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, all right, it's okay. You know, I realized, oh no, no, this will work. This actually works. I don't need the extras. But I got close there. It wasn't. It it just kept getting longer. Um, the just the thing. If you do, you know, if you add one more page, it means they have to tack on another. Seven or fourteen. Well, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's the the thing is you you don't want that that sheaf of extra blank pages in the back. Like the pacing, that was really important to me to get the pacing right. And I had this sort of outro, you know, thing that was a few pages of text, and they were paced in such a way that, you know, if if I wound up with extra blanks, it would be like, ah, shit. Now what do I do? Or you could do like the Kyle Baker book, where he's just like uh, adds some blank pages, and he's like, now draw your own comic. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, one of the things I was thinking about with this book is I was remembering when you were in Vancouver before, and I was trying to get you to draw my little sketchbook, and um, you apprehensively um, tried your hardest not to for, for quite a while. Um, and maybe I'm kind of jumping the gun to kind of talk about the context of the book. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um... I just guess kind of thinking about your own kind of anxiety with drawing um, oh, yeah. with, 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 the, with the book itself, which um, for folks that are going to read it, it's all about kind of uh, an artist being in a place to really manifest uh, the artwork that they want to see and want to be able to create. Yeah. And then with a lot of insecurities and all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I had, well, I have a lot of insecurities about my drawing and, you know, like, that was never the thing I was known for or, you know, celebrated for or whatever. I might have ideas that would get people interested, but, um, but you know, nobody was particularly excited about the way I drew figures or faces or whatever. Um, and I knew that this was something I needed to deal with, you know, just, just the process of drawing, uh, just recapturing a love of drawing. Um, I thought my stuff was always very stiff. Sometimes that's because it was rushed. When when my stuff is rushed, it gets stiff. I know it should go the other way, but it doesn't. Um, so in the, in this book, I took a few steps towards that. I mean, first of all, I wrote a book teaching myself how to draw. That was making comics. You know, I, <laughs> I kind of I joke about that, but you know, it's it's at least half true. When I was working on that book, I was trying to teach myself to be a better artist to get ready for this book. Right. So, so this is what you do when you write books about how to draw: is you write a book to tell yourself how to draw. And then but, you, you get better at it. Well, it's got to uh, be such a learning process and everything. I mean, it would, it would it'd be daunting if you were just this being on high that, that understood the entire process of comic storytelling and just had to, and, and just vomited it out as opposed right. to the whole <laughs> creative process for you to even understand it yourself. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we're all, you know, ultimately schmoes and, you know, and I, uh, I there's no way I had all the answers. I, there's no way I still do. But um, but the one thing I did seem to have a, a gift for was um, clearly seeing my own uh, flaws. <laughs> you know, like I, I think I have a good inner editor 
And mm. so I've always had a pretty level view of the things where, where, where my stuff just needed work. So, um, so I worked at it and, uh, you know, I worked in my figure drawing especially, and I also got live models for this one. So even though it's drawn in a, you know, semi-simple style, it's actually a little bit more realistic than my old stuff. And it's also, I think, a little more fluid, a little more spontaneous, partially because I had real people that were helping me to get these poses right. So Robin was just alluding to you not wanting to draw in front of people, but if you have models there, obviously you have to. Oh, no, no, no. Well, a lot of it was photos. Um, huh. So, yeah, even then I didn't have to draw in front of them. Well, the other thing is, is you know, I haven't really overcome that. I'm still not really good in the moment as a draftsman because what I do on the Cintiq in Photoshop is I do a shitty drawing and then on a layer above it I do a slightly less shitty drawing and then I just keep trimming the, the shit until, until it starts looking okay. Um, and I know that doesn't really sound like a really good or organic way to draw, but for somebody without a lot of natural talent, it's actually a pretty good way to go. You know, I, I had different tools, like I had this one action where I could select any part of the canvas and just flip it, you know, mm -hmm. visually flip it and see what it looks like backwards. And that's a really great way to find out when you're, when the inner structure of a drawing is all cockeyed and when things are lopsided, because you don't right. really see it until, you know, it's the equivalent of putting it up to a mirror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I just automated that process, and I just okay. Now I know I got to raise this eye, I gotta bring this eye down. Um, I got to fix the thing until it looks right. So, so I edit, then I read, then I edit, then I read, then I edit, then I read until it's right. And that's not the sort of thing I can pull out a pen and do in front of people, um, you know, with a piece of paper. Right, and I think that's a big a big learning curve for different artists is understanding that there's no one right way to make comics. And, uh, and it can become kind of terrifying. Like, uh, was the was the French guy that you interviewed a while back, Robin, who does, does the fantastic twenty four hour comics? Oh, Boulet. Boulet, yeah. yeah. I yeah. met him recently. England, yeah. Embarrassing to watch work because he'll do these like watercolor, you know, he'll do these convention sketches that are like publishable and beautiful. Yeah, Boulet, like Mobius, is is one of the few people for whom structure seems to have been preconceived to the extent where he can just put his pen down and deliver something that feels like it was conceived, you know, structurally. Like it right. has all of like the solidity something. What were we yeah. saying? I cut you off. Oh, I'm sorry. And I actually missed what you said. What was <laughs> I was just talking over you. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, like he's got it. Boulet's got it. And um, it's it's pretty amazing, and he's he's a good storyteller. I I I'd be really interested to see what he does in the next ten and twenty years. He's the real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm really fascinated. Uh, it seems like a lot of maybe this is getting off topic a bit, but it seems like there's a lot of cartoonists who are getting fairly far into their comic career, just doing a lot of autobiographical work, and and I'm always trying to figure out if if it's just my own wants to to have them do longer form stories mm. or. You know, or if they're building towards more, or if if that's just the kind of work they do, I generally I have that same desire to see people like go for the brass ring and do something as kind of a big standalone thing. Right. Uh, not everybody wants to, but it it kind of confuses me. If you've got a lot of talent, that you wouldn't want to try to create something with you know some weight, something that could land with a thud. Yeah, like uh, the the author of French Milk. I remember waiting a long time for her to put out a. A book that wasn't autobiographical, and then I'm, after a while, I was just like, "Oh, maybe that's just what she does." Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, Lucy, yeah, some of her, Lucy Nicely is who we're talking about. Um, yeah, 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 you know, hmm, yeah, I'm sort of waiting for the Lucy Nicely in comic instead of a Lucy Nicely comic. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of feel like it's like, okay, we haven't necessarily seen it yet. But, um, you know, what happens, though, is I think for, for some of the best artists, like, you know, going back to my time, people like Dan Klaus, is what happens is you... You go out, you kind of stretch your limbs, and everybody's like, wow, this person has talent, this person's pretty cool. And you get some attention, and you feel the sunlight on your face, and things are going well. And then you're, you're getting better, and you, you're sort of coasting a little, and then people start kind of turning away and looking to the next thing. And then there's that crucial moment where either you just kind of gradually fade from the scene and move on, or you just do something that demands to be seen, that, that nobody can ignore. Uh, and that's when you kind of break out and become this other person that nobody even knew was inside of you. And that's, you know, I kind of hope for everybody to do that at some point. Right. So for Klaus, was that going from like Lloyd Llewellyn to Abel? Yeah, exactly. Or Chris Ware going from, God, Floyd Farland, Farland citizen yeah. of the future. To, <laughs> I think, I think you so, need to notice that, though. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere that. he's mad that he, that name even got said. <laughs> Oh, I, I think he's on record as wishing that comic never existed. Yeah. Um, it was a bad comic. It just was kind of unremarkable. Yeah, it was unremarkable. But like with me, of course, it was like uh, when, when I did Understanding Comics. You know, Zod, you know, Zod had its fans. It, you know, there were people who liked that stuff. Um, but but I, I got to the point where I realized I can't just like keep doing this. You know, I, I have to do this other thing. Well, it almost felt like you had two careers in that way because your Zod life was such a um it seemed like you're a part of a scene and then you kind of evolved past that scene and became another it, it kind of doing an entirely different type of comics which you don't see happen very often yeah i've done that a few times actually i i have a penchant for abandoning my newfound families you know <laughs> i'll create a little community around myself and then everybody's like where, where did scott go right <laughs> like i'm over bunch. here on the internet <laughs> <laughs> and now you're saying you're uh, preferring this book to be read in uh, in book form oh in hell yeah but form. that's that's totally consistent though i mean like i've always been mr original format you know like i, I hate repurposing of any kind mm-hmm. so you know if you're going to do something for print you you do it for print if you're going to do something uh you know for for digital out i'll be for digital and i i know that runs that's sort of against the grain of kind of tumblr culture where it's just like you know, you know here it is on the screen here is it here it is at spx and yeah whatever but I was looking at the galley, I was thinking about how um, Design for Prince is, because you pick a specific um, way of formatting the pages for most of it. Like, you know, big panel at the top corner um, that goes to the bleed, mm-hmm. um, bottom one goes to the bleed. Kind of reminds me of like how Kirby would do like specific paneling. Yeah, um, and it's on, a, it's on a three grid. If you look at the side of the book, I don't know if this is as true of the galley as it is of the, the actual book. But you can even see sort of this band. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like yeah, if you, yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm interested about um, your choice of kind of paneling in a specific way um, for most of the book. But you kind of, at a point, jump away from that near the end. Yeah, the thing's got a pretty consistent beat to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's And it's just a series of kind of inevitable decisions that I that I make based on the needs of the scene where it's like okay new scene or new new interior shot I'm going full bleed on that I've always I always like 
full bleed, especially silent bleeds for um, for a sense of place when you go to an, especially a big space. You know, like okay, now suddenly we're in a subway station. You know, to me that without a bleed, it's just it's just a missed opportunity. Of course, it's going to have a bleed there. Um, it goes back to my manga days when I was you know first looking at stuff like this. This uh, comic, Father and Son, which was a like a, a father and son, we were both cops, and then everybody else in the cast was also cops, and there were like every possible character type except everybody was a policeman. And this is back back in the eighties. I, I never even knew the name of it. Um, Norio Hayashi and Yusuita Yusuita Osima, I think, were the art, the writer and artist. But this thing was just so state of the art, and I loved the storytelling techniques. And one of the things they did was they just had a very kind of predictable but very effective use of bleeds. Every time you wanted to feel like kind of, I don't know, it's like bringing in the bass notes, bringing in the trombones, mm-hmm. or, you know, when, when music kind of dro- drops into a larger sonic space. And to me, that's, you know, there are plenty of times in a story when you just, you want that, you need that. And you mentioned it being silent. Is that, is that important for you to not have text when, when beginning a new sequence? Well, sometimes I, I, I do have, I, probably have word balloons in a lot of those but um but yeah ideally i don't know it's really good because then what happens is is that initial statement of like you are here echoes and persists it it bleeds figuratively speaking it bleeds into subsequent panels so right. the thing the thing sits there kind of speaking without words and just and just kind of sending this this vibe that 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 tends to I don't know, contaminate the whole spread. That sounds a little weird, but um, it lingers. It lingers. Now, this is a book you've wanted to do for a long time, from what I understand, right? Yeah, really long time. This The story goes back to when I was really young, and it was a very, you know, young man's story. I mean, like, in broad strokes, the thing is 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 practically, you know, like a just-past-adolescent superhero idea. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, what was the choice to kind of revisit it um later on after doing all these other words well the funny thing is it never completely left me it's like i i i mean i would talk about this and we would you know we'd mention the sculptor and it would always be like you know well you know when is it going to be the right time to do this thing because you know past my 20s into my 30s you know certain ingredients came into the story and i started to think about it as like a real viable story Mm -hmm. uh i like the ending i like the way the story played out and I thought, if done right, this thing could be really cool. Um, but it was tricky. It was it was it was a balancing act because it's also this so the big corny story as well. Um, and so that meant that that the important thing was in the details and in the way it was fleshed out. And that's one of the reasons we took a lot of extra time getting it right in the the layout stage. It took me two years to do the layout in four drafts. And this remember, this is like almost a five hundred page book. Mm-hmm. Four drafts of the rough layouts, and my rough layouts aren't all that rough. They're actually pretty, you know, OCD, pretty thorough. Um, Is there so, enthusiasm going through four drafts? I had, yeah, no, my enthusiasm only grew because because huh. I fixed so much stuff in the second draft, and then I fixed so much more stuff in the third draft. But then in the fourth draft, I hit some kind of magical, you know, fourth state of matter or something where all of a sudden. Instead of correcting things, I was just kind of clearing away everything that wasn't my story. I felt like I was excavating my story, digging it out of the ground. And it, it got really exciting. I was like, whoa, 
I'm I'm learning how to write. Holy shit! Um, and that that was really cool. And that, that a lot of that was thanks to Mark Siegel who gave me the space to get it right. Mm-hmm. But, so had oh, you, I'm enthusiastic about it. Had you not done such a laborious process with other books, like this was the most of your work that you've put in that much prep work. Well, stuff like Zot, which of course was all done, you know, originally in issue format. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was always racing the clock, and everything was sort of defined by the length of the issue itself. And, you know, you're trying to fit fit what you had to say into so many pages and so many minutes, so many hours. And then when you were done, it was time to move on to the next thing, and you always knew that it wasn't right. And with this one, if it wasn't right, we fixed it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, just, it just took longer. I just had to draw 400 pages, excuse me, draw nearly 500 pages, then draw that 500 pages again, then draw that 500 pages again, draw that 500 pages again. And then, when that was done, then it was time to actually begin the first panel of finished art. Were there any stele- story, any sequences in the story that, that you felt like you nailed initially and you didn't have to rework, or the reworking didn't improve? Yeah, yeah, actually, um, the ending is the, is the very ending of the book changed the least, because that... that a lot of it sort of radiated backwards into the rest of the story. Um, but, um, yeah, there were, there were a few things that were there in the first draft, definitely. Um, but there are plenty of other things that changed. As a matter of fact, when I was done, when I was done drawing the entire book, okay, uh, I mean, we're literally talking like everything is done, it's all ready to go. Mm-hmm. I talked my editor into letting me re- relay out, rewrite, and redraw like the first 40, 50 pages. Oh Jesus! <laughs> because, because it's, it's, just, well, I got better, and you know, like, like we self harm at this point, though. <laughs> but what was great? What was great is it happened at San Diego, like when you know, on Sunday when at San Diego they have the big announcement saying they're tearing down all the booths, and you know, like everybody go home. Anyone without the right badge, you got to leave. Right. I don't have the right badge, but I'm standing there talking to Mark Siegel like in front of the first, second booth, and everybody's literally like taking things down, putting things in boxes, tearing down their posters, pulling up the, 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 the cloth on their tables. They're literally rolling up the carpets, right? So they're taking down this entire huge convention hall all around us. And while they're doing that, I'm, I'm convincing my editor to let me scrap right. like the first 50 pages of my book. You're like, do you see what they're doing to this convention here? I want to do that to the beginning of my book. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I won, you know, I won. I, you know, like I, I, I described something that, that he agreed would be better, and then I went off and did it. Nice. So how long have you been working on this book? Like, when did you start the, the drawing? Well, the, the actual, the funny thing is that it proceeded with the tour. I mean, like, there was this, that 50-state tour we did for, under, for uh, Making Comics. Mm-hmm. That was back in 2006, 2007. And while I was on that, I, we had already sort of decided I got to do the sculptor next. Which, but the thing was I was on tour, right? So I couldn't draw a thing. So all I did was think about it and take notes. And, and then, uh, then we had to actually sell a publisher on the idea to buy me the time. You know, I like got a family to support, so somebody had to be paying the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we had to go through that process. Finally, we take care of that process. And then... Uh, like I said, about five years ago or so, I started to sit down and do the layouts uh, and actually draw stuff. And it was all drawn digitally. It was all done on, on my Cintiq in Photoshop. What are, and the layouts as well? The layouts, as a matter of fact, yeah. The layouts were especially cool because I was doing 40 pages at a time because I had this thing where I think that we're, you know, 
there are different ways to take advantage of the composition of the page, but I think sometimes we get locked into the page, mm-hmm. and our and our pacing is so governed by the page that we find these things that work as compositions on the page, but don't necessarily work in a panel-to-panel rhythm, and I wanted it to be a little more panel-to-panel because I wanted the story, the, the process of reading the story to be more moment-to-moment-to-moment throughout right. the whole thing. And so I like the idea of the panel, uh, the, of the... Um, Sort of the, the where that axe fell at the end of the page. I want that to be a little bit more arbitrary, or at least feel that way. And so, um, so I laid out forty pages at a time, two rows of twenty pages in one single Photoshop document. Mm-hmm. And what I do is, like, I would grab panels and take them out and put them in this white space above or below those strips of, pa- of pages. And so, what I was doing was, it was more like word processing, right? If you take a sentence out, everything else just naturally reflows. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so I wanted to be able to do that with panels, too. And so I created an environment where I could think that way. I could think in terms of the scene instead of getting too hung up on just the page. Right, and that's the advantage of breaking it up into in a kind of three-tier rows for most of the book. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that is a big part of that. It says that by having a... Also, I, I sort of just like, generally, I like the idea of, of deep structure, that there's some kind of underlying architecture to the page. Uh, even if you find all kinds of different ways to subvert it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because that's such a Western approach to it, but a lot of your storytelling seems very manga-influenced, too. And oh, especially yeah. you know, laying out you know, 20-page chunks or 40-page chunks. <laughs> right, and the, and the idea of flow. Actually, you know, manga has that vertical flow that I used in a lot of the web comics. Right. But, um, yeah, I, well, you know, the thing about the manga influence now is that it's just the rest of comics is kind of caught up with us. You know, those those of us who, you know, like you and me, were just like for a long time were really um, turned on by a lot of the stuff that was going on in in, in manga storytelling. Um, now it's it's become a lot more normal. You know, since since like '95 or so. Yeah, but there's still that stuff that's like uh, you know, like the deep manga, the weird. <laughs> 19... 1983 girls comics where there's panels that are just blank for for pacing you know yeah yeah well that's in a lot of ways i mean that that was that interiority that idea of like okay can we show the landscape of what's going on in somebody's mind yeah which is which is what happens when a when a genre has been around for a while because you know we saw you know in the states people try their they, they they take a stab at this genre or that genre but you need to wait about 20 years for people to like figure out what's unique about the genre and start to really develop a whole arsenal of techniques that serve that particular kind of a story. We're not, we're not really there yet. Oh, interesting. I'd, I'd almost assume for some things like, uh, you know, like, uh, say like, uh, Mobius heavy metal style stuff, it seemed like something that, that when, when it first hit every, the innovation was happening and the longer it was around, almost the more dulled down it got. Hmm. As far as, I mean, maybe that's not storytelling structure as much as just people throwing out as many um, acid-fueled ideas as they they can think of. (laughs) Well, you know, I think Mobius influenced, you know, it's funny, a lot of the the stuff surrounding Mobius really came to the States through heavy metal, of course. Um, I think that that transmitted the idea of some of the surface stuff and I think a lot of the world-building values what was going on there, mm-hmm. whereas it didn't necessarily, it captivated artists. That's it. Okay, the European invasion, the like 70s, 80s, that captivated artists, whereas manga captivated readers hmm. because they were so good at like placing you in the middle of the action 
um, that it, I think we had a harder time like picking up on what they were actually doing. Right. Certainly. Do you do you find that when you're like for something like Zot, you must have you must have trained yourself and, and maybe just growing up in American comics to do much faster paced comics. But when you're doing something like Sculptor, I imagine that it, it just becomes a lot slower because you've got more room to breathe. Oh yeah, no, it's a lot slower. I mean, you know, that's it's a 500-page story that I could have absolutely done in 250 if I wanted to. But then I wouldn't have been able to have the rhythm of real conversations. I wouldn't have been able to have those moments when somebody just stops and takes an extra pause before saying what they have to say. Or you know, right. like you know, one of the one of the things that's super important right now is that as the all ages stuff is coming in and people like Raina Telgemeier or Vera Brosgal are starting to influence a new generation. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this idea of emotion as action. Mm-hmm. This is, this is something that, that, you know, it sounds obvious, but, um, my generation, you know, anyone coming out of the superhero world for, for many years in, in American comics, that's just, you just didn't do that. You just did not see, Right. A, change, a change of emotional state as a plot point. It's one of those things that's it's obvious, but, but yeah, no one would do it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone could sit around and talk about it, but then when they sit down and, and draw it, it's still a, a crime fighter in an alley. Yeah, well, they didn't, they didn't have the room. I mean, like, I, I think you had Matt Fraction on, on, I'm pretty sure it was on Ink Studs recently, and mm-hmm. he was talking about this, this notion of um, how cool it was when he realized that, oh, you could do your characterization in the middle of a fight scene. You know, you could have you could have these word balloons, you know, like people, um, uh, you know, like uh, having having this whole conversation while they're jumping over, you know, each other or, or, or you know, knocking people out or, or having a car chase or whatever. And it's like, yes, this is <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and I love I love the way that, you know, gifted people like Matt or, or David Aha can pull that off and, and create something that's really interesting. But it also it's also a creature of the need to conserve space um, mm-hmm. that you, that you can't also, you know, just have the camera come into somebody's face and show three separate emotions in three separate panels and, and not have to cram it all into a word balloon while you're dodging a bullet. Right. Well, it's that limitation of you have to do your story in so many pages that goes across so many issues. So you can do that trade paperback for twelve ninety five. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's also the value. You know, how much story value are you giving people for their dollar? You know, we, we have this, this mm-hmm. terrible problem in comics of, of price per minute, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. compared to TV, compared to movies, compared to binge-watching a whole season of Orange is the New Black or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're not competing well. And, and the funny thing is, as you move into digital, as you move into mobile comics... Um, you have to ask yourself, well, why not? You know, why, you know, like with mobile, you're not, you don't need to save paper, you know, it's just like draw faster, give them a 48 page comic. But then of course you have problems with stores that are at a competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And also artists that need to be able to keep up that speed or that kind of challenge. Right. Well, it's a whole different kind of drawing. And that's what you saw in Mongi when you saw, when you saw people doing, um, you know, like those the stories that you would just rip through on the subway train, you know, at, at at a page every two seconds or whatever, just flip, 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 flip. They were also drawing it faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and assistance. And, and yes, and they had assistance because they had an actual industry. 
Right. You know? <laughs> they were generating enough money that you could do that. I was just looking at Viz's. Uh, Viz has got like a sale going on right now about for their their digital comics. They had a thing that was like free seventy something pages of uh, that. All you need is kill, which is the manga version of the Tom Cruise Groundhog Day movie. And, uh, <laughs> I love that movie. Did you love that movie? Yeah, it was really entertaining. It was a good movie. <laughs> what was the name of the actual movie? Well, uh, it changed. It was it was the day after tomorrow or something like that. Yeah. And and but then suddenly the slogan, which was um, "Die Repeat," something "Die Repeat," sort of became the name of the movie. It was very weird. I think a hacker got him and sent an email somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, but my my whole point was just reading. The manga is really pretty, but just reading um, seventy pages of it was like. Like I, my brain always goes back to my kind of monthly comic pacing, and it was seriously like fifteen pages of story in seventy-two pages, fifteen pages of American story, I should say. Right, right. You know, and and but we're not trained. I think you know, in America, we weren't trained to believe that it's all that important that we know that when when you know when character A tells character B that um, that he he thinks that she's she's being uh, you know stupid about something that that you can tell that there's this twinkle in his eye that he actually likes her right right you know like that's that we don't that's not even on our radar it's like dude come on we only have a page before they have you know it's and it's got to happen while they're in the danger room right you know? but it's interesting too because modern manga i feel like it also like there, there's disadvantages to it too because some it feels like they're dragging their feet because they um you know, because they know that they have to keep the story going for as long as possible. Oh, yeah. Well, there's downsides to it. I mean, like, you know, any, you know, I mean, what's the universal principle here? It's that anyone who f- has to distort their story to fit a preconceived format right. is is not doing their story justice. Stories should take whatever shape and go, go to whatever length they need to. And that's not been the tradition here, and that, to some extent, that's not been the tradition in Japan or in Europe. Right, but it's and nice to see, like, um, I, have you, have you, I imagine you've, you've read a fair amount of Urasawa at this point. Uh, no, no, I haven't. No. No? No, talk oh. to me. Which, what was it, Urasawa? Urasawa, Urasawa did 20th Century Boys and Pluto. And, uh, oh, 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 yes, I'm sorry that, that you were speaking of the artist. Um, uh, no, I, I've only really started uh, both, but... You got to remember, I was working eleven to fourteen hours a day for five years. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, like literally seven days a week, huge, huge days. My, this is why you have to put comics in the bathroom, and this is yeah, why exactly. Comics. Yeah, I have, I have some of those books, but I, you know, my my to be read, it's just it would reach oh. Mars at this point. Oh, I, I imagine it's got to be. Uh, but yeah, no, your your is someone who um, reading his work really. I was getting really jaded on manga pacing and kind of modern manga. And then reading his work was like, oh, this is how you do it right. This is how you use assistance. And this is how you pace comics in a weekly fashion and, and make it work incredibly well. Yeah, well, that's it. But, uh, you know, some of that stuff, I, you know, I've seen, I see Pluto was one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, no, I, yeah I've seen Pluto. And to me, to my eyes, that's a little bit, it's a little bit more Western in its construction than um, some of the stuff I was looking at in like the eighties and nineties. Yeah, that's probably true. You know, it's, it's, everything is, it's moving a little bit closer together. You know, we have more international artists than ever before. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a good thing or do you, do you, 
prefer when things are kind of when comics are feel more alien from different sections. I think cross pollination is always good so long as it doesn't just become this this sad convergence where everybody's just moving closer to the center. You also want people like you know, like just slingshotting out into new orbits and things like that. Right. But, sure. but it's always good when, when, when influences are, are, you know, crossing the pond. That's always good. Um, you know, and if you look, really it's, you know, I think of it as, I don't know, we had these three islands of comics to some extent up until about 1990, and then everything just started flowing again. Um, and uh, it was good. I mean, it's resulted in some really amazing stuff. Do you mean like European comics, American comics, and... Yeah, I mean, of course, we had we we had some bridges between uh, what was going on in in the Franco-Belgian tradition, what was going on in North America. But even so, they were they were a pretty distinct pair of cultures. They were very very different. And Japan was truly an island, right. and just just like Madagascar, you know, it it evolved a lot of unique life forms over the course of thirty forty years. Right. Um, but then you started seeing, you know, Otomo and uh, Miyazaki and people who were clearly influenced by kind of that European world-building aesthetic, and, you know, things started getting really interesting. But it produced good stuff. I mean, good stuff came out of that cross-pollination. At a certain point, yeah, it becomes a little homogenized, but, um, you know, individual artists will find ways around that. Right, certainly. Yeah, it was interesting. Me and Robin went to New York recently, and um, it was really strange to me to... Uh, the the I felt like the... Like, I, I'm always used to, I always feel like I'm, like, ten minutes behind on where comic books are going and where, like, the new scenes are and everything. And in New York, it felt like getting into a time machine and going back where the old superhero guys and the old Raw magazine guys were still there. Yes. <laughs> New York is a bit of an island itself, actually. I noticed that about New York. New York has, New York has its own kind of provincial uh, field that's, it's nice. I mean, it's nice to say that, you know, yes, there are still regions. There are still mm-hmm. communities that are different. You know, Vancouver is not New York. New York is not Austin. Austin isn't Minneapolis. And that's that's good. I, I like there to be some local character. I like to think that Matt Fazell and his friends are still getting together on Tuesday nights in Hamtramck, Michigan and doing mini-comics. You know, right. that's <laughs> that should be happening. But, yeah, but New York, you can sometimes forget the rest of the world exists when you are in New York long enough. But of course that's, that's a New York tradition right there. One that's been lampooned by New Yorkers like Saul Steinberg, you know? Yeah. But it it was strange that to me that it was, it felt back in time as opposed to the most advanced place, but maybe it was just, I um, think it it was also part of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's part of the New York tradition though, that mainstream tradition. I mean, you know, you can't expect planets as big as Marvel and DC not to exert some gravity. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Oh, Sorry. Only Marvel, I guess. Wait, <laughs> Mad yeah. Magazine's still in New York. That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. They, uh, they apparently they all refused to move, and because it's all the old guys, they kind of had to keep it there. They I mean, just <laughs> chained themselves to the Alfred E. Newman statue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things I was thinking about with the sculptor is um, a lot of the premise of the book is choices artists make, um, and I'm wondering about that kind of with yourself. Um, what was coming up from that? Um, kind yeah. of running through what are the specific choices you want to make? What do you want to be your legacy? Um, right. Well, you know, one of the more important things with, with this particular character is that, you know, 
I had to figure out that in a lot of ways this story wasn't about somebody who wanted to be remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more about somebody who had a terror of being forgotten. And those are two very different things. And so, you know, they, it, I think the story became more interesting the more it was about an animal need on his part rather than some lofty aspiration of, like, creating masterpieces or whatever. Um, you know, he, he's, he comes from a family that not only died for various perfectly ordinary reasons, the, the three of them, uh, but who also, like, were creative people of one sort or another like himself, but are also being forgotten, you know? And, and so he, he feels that, that terror of just sliding into obscurity. Um, and he's, he's an artist who had a little attention early in his life. And now, even though he's still pretty young, he's already seeing himself be forgotten too. So, so for him, the choice isn't really there. It's just like, it's just, he's driven. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't, he, he can't even say why he's just driven to try to hang on to something, to leave something in the world that can serve as a kind of anchor. So he, he won't feel like he's been completely washed away as if he never was born at all um but again that's something that evolved that's something that i had to understand in my story you know originally i just had a more conventional conception of an artist who wanted to do something great something important be remembered whatever um and and i had to find the story underneath the story and that was what i found um but then the choice that he does have to make more consciously is how to spend his days when he finds himself in this situation with a, a very specific number of days to live um, and the choice to spend it with another human being, you know, because he falls in love. Um, and that's a choice we all make as artists, too. It's just how do you apportion your days? Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it got fairly autobiographical in some ways. Well, I, I, you know, I can be very, very specific here. I can tell you that, that uh, my character is about 40% me. And uh, and my and the woman he falls in love with is about seventy percent uh, Ivy, my wife. Right. Um, and you know she inspired the character of Meg, who, who he falls in love with, long, long ago. I mean, we're talking twenty, almost thirty years ago, during this this seven year period where I was secretly in love with her. Uh-huh. Um, and um, and so yeah, so I used however much of our lives was appropriate to use but i tried to let the story have its own physics and tried not to put anything in the story just because it somehow referred to something personal yeah Mm -hmm. avoiding awkward nods and whatnot yeah yeah nothing like that you know just there's just one or two coded references that i i talk about in the in the little afterward after Mm -hmm. the story um one of the things i was thinking about is uh once when I interviewed Seth, he talked about how he uh, thinks about his own mortality as far as how much time he has to make each book. So what, mm-hmm. what ideas does he want to prioritize? And obviously this one, for you, seems like this was your priority story you've been wanting to do for a long time. Yeah, it was. Well, it just, you know, of, of all the things that I might have worked on, this was the one that I thought could be the most interesting but it's also the riskiest because it could be like super embarrassing. Uh, you know, I was. Uh, <laughs> You're just waiting for the comics journal review. Well, no, I mean, well, there, I, I, you know, I, I don't really expect much from that quarter, regardless. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, 
no, the the thing is that like it's just such a big pompous premise that um that like the chances to get it wrong were were many. But you know, like I feel good after the fact because I do like I really like the way it turned out in the end. But I also know that um uh you know, I know exactly how it could have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And you know how it could have been humorless and you know and pompous and utterly middle brow, you know? And, you know, I think you could say probably the last part, you could probably still accuse it of being middle brow on some level. Um, but I think I went the distance with it, you know, and I think that that I I'm at peace with the parts of the story that came from like a 27 year old me. You know, this is the thing is, I was very young when I thought of this story and I I had to somehow capture the vitality of the kinds of ideas you have when you're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, that optimism. Yeah, we, we, it's just sort of the, the, the wanting, to, wanting to say big, big things about big things, you know, just wanting to make big, broad statements about art and life and death. You know, that's, that's a sure way to go crashing into a tree somewhere. <laughs> right. like, do you think if you would have done this at 27, uh, do you think you could have pulled it off, or, or do you think it would have read completely different than, than your personal? No, it would have been. It would have been terrible if I'd done it then. Yeah. I think I really needed, I needed a lot of years behind me. I needed to be a little bit closer to, to actually dying, you know, which I am not, I mean, I'm not dying, but you know what I mean. I needed to to be a little bit further down that, that path. Um, uh, And, and I think I also needed to be more connected with and maybe a little bit more accepting of the ways in which, people's dreams often run aground mm-hmm. you know there's there's there are a lot of artists in the world there are a lot of people with creative aspirations and nearly all of them will be forgotten by by anyone but their children right that's the majority of art that goes on in the world um but every one of them at one point was some little kid with promise mm-hmm. somebody that some teacher instilled some hope in her or that was a you know a parent's dream or that well one kid who went to college or that you know like had a chance to do something amazing some fresh-faced you know angelic kid with just like all these dreams and power you know you can't you know the power and intensity of that desire to make something of yourself it does not necessarily correlate to the success rate you know, there are plenty of people with just a megaton of dreams and hopes, you know, for their own art, who just still couldn't put it together in the end. Um, and, and, and they deserve a story, too, I guess. Right. Yeah, sometimes I often think about um, how important it is to to really evaluate why you're doing something and really evaluate, like, you know, because because <clears throat> if you do if you do just come to the terms that you're making artwork and it might just be for yourself, then you kind of have to be okay with that. And uh, I'm wondering if you if you dealt with that at all in the story, if you just kind of let this guy's animal drive that he has to be remembered um, stick. Well, yeah, I mean, like in a way, you know, he's fighting a losing battle, and this is one of the things that sort of arises throughout the story, as you see that. You know, we're all fighting a losing battle, right? Because time's going to roll over all of us, you know? <laughs> you know, and but but the futility of it for me, that's what makes it beautiful to keep trying. Right. And, and to, to tell a really, I think, to tell a moving story 
uh, of the sort where, where desire is kind of the through line of the story, that desire has to sort of go beyond where one imagines it will. You know, it has to, it has to keep going where it would have seemed reasonable to stop. And, and so that's what I tried to do. That idea of design, desire taken to the edge of reason and beyond, I think, is something that, that characterizes a lot of stories that I like. Hmm. Now, I want to, I'm going to shift this over. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Best American Comics sure. anthology, um, which just came out in the fall a couple months ago, um, that you uh, edited with the help of uh, series editor Bill Cardolopoulos. And uh, Brandon is also in. I'll put that disclaimer. That's right, there. yeah, that's true. Yeah, with a pretty uh, Jaime Hernandez cover as well, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, a pretty Jaime Hernandez cover. Followed by end papers by Raina Telgemeier, uh, followed by um, Aileen Kaminsky Crum <laughs> giving Bob a blowjob. So, um, <laughs> yeah, how can we how can we quickly lower the class of this book? I just wanted to uh, I just want to get a head start on Banned Books Week 2015. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of those comics where Crumb is drawing himself as well? Yeah, this is this uh, the dirty laundry style. What a what a what a, what a terror to, to have to draw yourself receiving a blowjob while someone else draws themselves giving. You- <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything it terrifies him anymore. No, no, I mean not for them, I meant for the rest of us. <laughs> uh, so this is your. Was this your first time kind of doing something like this, um, curating? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I do everything once. This was my once <laughs> for that. It's, uh, and it was really, really hard. <laughs> Anyone who considers this job in the future, just know it is really, really, really hard. It takes a long time because you've got to read a shitload of comics, and then you have to, you know, choose, which is, which is murder. And then you've got to write stuff about it. It sounds it's like hard. it would be a lot more fun if they didn't publish it and they have to share it with other people. Right, yeah, it would be good if you could just do it for yourself and then oh, just sorting your comics you read. <laughs> <laughs> Here's some good comics. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, did you have kind of an idea of what you wanted to do for that book going into it, or um, did you just kind of dive into it and just like Bill would just throw things at you? And Why? I knew from the start I wanted to have range. You know, that was the most important thing was that I wanted to see if I could maybe just at least try to throw my arms around the whole world of comics, mm-hmm. which is not easy. You know, it's it's because it, it's gotten really big. Um, but uh, I think that one of the very first emails I sent to Bill Cardolopoulos, the series editor, was um, how he wanted to go from DeForge to to Telgemeier. You know, because I thought that I thought that was the whole range, and then I realized after the fact that that's not even the whole range. You know, you can go a little further on either direction. Yeah, right. you got. I think you have Aiden Coke in here. Yeah, exactly. That's a little further than DeForge. DeForge yeah. looks downright poppy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's surprisingly accessible, as, as weird as he draws. Yeah, yeah, he can be absolutely. Um, very prolific that fellow. Oh yeah, he doesn't stop. Yeah. But, you know, like actually hyperbole and a half in some ways might be the furthest afield because, you know, it just so completely like all, whatever aesthetic standards you have for the rest of the book, they all just kind of break and fall to the ground when you get to hyperbole and a half. I don't think I know which that one was. 
And it's the web comic that uh, Alec Brett. That's like the best selling comic in America. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's because you know, like because it's so different. Yeah, it's like looking at. Yeah, I mean, like it can be completely off your radar, even as like people are like, it's she's on the the Today Show, and and you know, like it's it's flying off the shelves at Barnes and Noble because, and all it is is a collection of her web comics. But right. you know, she has millions of people reading. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I'm, I'm wondering how you organized it. It must be. Um, I, I think I, I, I paid as much attention to where I was in the book, but but it's. Um, <laughs> I think I think my my story's next to Saga. It's kind of in the image comic section. Is it is publishers a way that you that you organize things at all in it? No, no, not not <laughs> publishers at all. Um, I didn't even realize that those were both the image. Now that's that section. Strange Adventures was going to start with Hawkeye, actually. Okay. Um, but, uh, but then it could, let me just double check that. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to start with Hawkeye. Um, but then there was this rights issue. It was kind of sad because there were no bad guys in the whole tussle, but what happened was, you know, Marvel said, Hey, this has an Avenger in it. And, you know, you're offering us, you know, this, you know, page rate that, you know, that's not that big. How about you give us a little bit more money? Cause this is part of a, like a billion dollar franchise. And um, Hardcore, wait, HMH? Yeah, HMH, the, the yeah. publisher. They were like, um, well, you know, the way we do this is everybody gets the same rate. Right. And Marvel was like, yeah, we understand, but, you know, we're owned by Disney Dow, so, you know, pay us a little extra. That's such a weird backwards logic, too, because it's just like, we, we have a lot of money. You better give us more money. Right. <laughs> but still, I... I get it. If I was one of, if I was, you know, like a, you know, a, an acquisition lawyer for, for Disney slash Marvel, I would think, I'll bet we can get more money, right? right. So you sleep at night. Yeah, right. So, so HMH is like, ah, oh, we can't give you more money, and I'm like, I really want Hawkeye in there because Hawkeye was one of my, uh, the vertices on my polygon. You know, I this to show the shape of comics. You want Hawkeye to be one of the one of the entries there to have a superhero book it was important to me um and so uh they were really sweet and they said okay you know what we'll do it this once but not again and i'm like okay because yeah <laughs> it's really interesting to me and almost almost less so in because because it's interesting how it's like obviously it's um like aha, aha i've always every time i've, I've met uh david aha i get, I get uh, corrected on pronouncing his name <laughs> Because I did with his right Spanish accent. I've only met him the one time, but but uh, we had a lot of fun with him in Spain. Yeah, um, but uh, but, but anyway. they're they're playing into like a lot of it's kind of nostalgia done, but but being with Hawkeye and at Marvel makes a new thing. I feel like it's almost like the death of the modern superhero for me seeing that comic because it's like the way you make Hawkeye relevant is you make it not a superhero book. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's there's actually a lot of action in the thing. But it's it's mostly I think a lot of it has to do with just sort of the texture of it and the storytelling and sort of getting around those page limitations what we were talking about before simply by by packing more pacing into each and every page and and, and making it pretty complex and just trying out interesting storytelling ideas. Right. But, also, just kind of tongue in cheek in a in a in, I guess in a newer way. It is, but I don't feel like it's like ruled by irony or anything like that. I think that I think there's actually a pretty earnest side to it. Right. Um, but anyway, so I really liked I liked the book and I wanted to include it. But what happened was, 
that HMH, the publisher of Best American, they were really sweet about it. And they say, okay, Scott, we'll do it this one time. And I'm like, fine with me. I'm, I'm not going to have to do it next time. Right? Um, and they, they pony up. And then we realize that there's um, a clause in the contract for like four other comics, including Chris Ware's building stories, uh, mm-hmm. where they are agreeing to our rate provided nobody gets more. Oh, man. And we lose Hawkeye, you know, because otherwise we lose we lose those other guys, including. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't going to let building stories drop out of the mix. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a rough. Uh, that's a that's a rough. Which which one of these babies dies? <laughs> yeah, well, I knew. I mean, like that actually, it wasn't a hard decision. It was just sad that I had to make it. Right. Um, the building uh, stories has to be weird too, because that's again that's such a that's such a book that the format was important to the initial uh to to how it was presented right exactly well that's you know like in that section i you know i titled that section uh the book of the year is not a book mm-hmm. you know because because the format was just so hard to fit into anything else but yeah so we have building stories doesn't fit into any categories at all hyperbole and a half doesn't fit into any categories at all um, you know, Aaron Curry doesn't fit into any category. Or no, Gerald Leblonsky certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> right? And um, you know, I'm finding all of these all of these things that just don't they don't fit into any category at all. And there mm-hmm. there you have it. There's your category, the uncategorizable world of comics in 2014. Do you feel like it gave you a a, a more clear a clearer idea about what was going on in that year than, than you would have had like the year before? Well, yeah, I had an excuse to read stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I'd read some of the things, but um, but I imagine just being who you are, you must like. I assume people just assume that you're have your finger on the pulse constantly, right? And that's that that was frustrating to me that I hadn't. So in a way, it was good to kind of force the issue, to force me to reengage as a matter of duty. You know, like I had to, I had to read a shitload of comics because. I had fallen behind. I had I'd become disconnected. I was not following these things um, uh, well enough just because of just the sheer number of hours in the day. I mean, I get a book like every two days. Somebody right. is sending me a book hoping I'll read it. And I was like, yeah, I really want to read everything. But if I'm working 11 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, um, I still have a family, you know. Mm-hmm. Think about the fort you can build out of all these books. Yeah, I know. I really, it is kind of a fort right now, and we're in earthquake country too. So, I have a uh, room in my house that's all bookshelves, and it's also the guest room. So we put an inflatable mattress in there or a mattress. That sounds and, good. Uh, yeah, and when you look up from the floor, it's not a a uh, you don't feel safe. <laughs> yeah, it's <just> like. <laughs> If if one of these shelves tips over, you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> How are you guys for earthquakes? I don't. I'm having trouble remembering a Vancouver earthquake. Uh, we're waiting for it. Okay. There's a big one supposedly going to come in the next hundred years. Shit. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm fucked. <laughs> Curse your immortality, Robin. Yep. No. <laughs> Books. Books. Yeah. yeah, they're all in one room though, so you know that that keeps it okay. Um, yeah. So your whoever's your guest at that point dies, but you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, I think Farrell's been the guest here the most, so I'm sorry, uh, Wrenchy's fans. 
I'm sorry, Wrenchies too. <laughs> I put we put a, like a zillion boxes into storage recently because we're going to just be traveling more than anything. So we don't really even have a fixed address. We dropped a bed at Ivy's parents' house, and mostly we're just on the road. Mm-hmm. But um, but we have these storage units in Oxnard, home to the Hernandez brothers. Mm-hmm. At, well, a long time ago, not anymore. Um, and uh, and all I can think of is if there's an earthquake. You know, that stuff is going to fall down. I won't even be able to open the door anymore. But I just won't look, you know. I'll just never open it again. And at least at least it's behind the door. <laughs> it's like the... Um, I took a bunch of ancient history courses and they were telling us about how they found this one place that has a bunch of um, scrolls, like pirate scrolls. And they're mm-hmm. trying to decide how to, to handle it because it's a room, an enclosed room. Um, once the oxygen goes in... How will the material react to that? So it just mm-hmm. stays closed until they know what to do. <laughs> oh man, do I think about the people after the zombie apocalypse that find Scott's room of comics he stashed? <laughs> <laughs> I hope they'll dig it. I, I hope they'll uh, find something to read. Yeah, imagine there's some Tintin in there or something. <laughs> yeah, what does zombies like to read? Not The Walking Dead. I would think it would be something else. It would be like Herbie... The Fat Fury, or zombies like books to tasty-looking people. Yeah, he eats a lollipop. What is there not to like? No, who's that guy? Um, Campbell? Is it Ross Campbell? Oh yeah, they they like Ross Campbell comics. Because the characters have jar have large heads, they're unintelligent. No, they are they. They're kind of they're Zoftig, right? Doesn't he draw a lot of like Zoftig goth women? Yeah. yeah, yeah, he does. And he did a zombie comic as well. Oh, he did? Oh, okay. All right. Well, there you go. So they'll, they'll love his stuff until they find that out, and it'll be a huge scandal. Yeah, well, like, it depends how he portrays the zombies. It's not too, it's not too uh, nice to zombies. I mean, who's nice to zombies? I just, I just <laughs> imagine zombies like getting their hands on any zombie comic at all and just <laughs> rolling their eyes and tossing it over their shoulder. You know, like, oh, God, again, really? But he calls himself an ally. <laughs> Um, so are you going to do a lot of touring for the book, uh, for the sculptor? Oh God, yeah. It comes out February 3rd, and the first thing we do is like 15 cities in 16 days. Jesus. Just in North America. And then, um, there are like all these foreign editions are coming out like about the same time. Some of them the very same day, and then some of them just a few weeks later. So we're going to England where there's, um, there's an edition an English language UK edition from Self Made Hero. And then it's um, like okay. Germany, Spain, Italy, France, going to be at the Paris Book Fair, um, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, we have a Korean edition already. Um, I'm not going there yet, although I probably will. And Ivy and I just got back from China and Chile. Um, and this is not like even before the book comes out, we've, we've been out of the country like five times this year. And right. Yeah. I did like 20 trips this year. So yeah. it's like already the, the traveling is insane. Was that kind of the reason of doing the, your 50 state tour was kind of getting something out before you have to like go into lockdown? Well, it was sort of the reverse. I, I was in lockdown when I was working on making comics Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the reward for putting up with Scott being a hermit for a couple of years for <laughs> Ivy was that then we got to be on the road for a year and like as a family and just like be together all the time, which mm-hmm. was kind of cool. So it's like it's like this 
play hard, work hard thing. Um, but yeah, I didn't, we didn't know when we started the sculpture that it would, instead of being three years, that it was going to be five. Mm. Uh, but I got a lot of support from first second. This was like, you know, it, despite my having to convince Mark to let me tear up the first 50 pages or whatever, um, it, they were really, really supportive of, uh, of the venture. And like at a certain point, Mark basically told me, you know what, throw away the schedule. Let's get this right. Mm-hmm. Uh, is anyone ever going to see those early pages? The, is that something you'd, you you put in a, like a supplemental edition or, <laughs> or well, the 700 page edition? Right. Exactly. I was going <laughs> to say, I think, I think we're already uh, pushing the limits of what consumers will, uh, will put up with as far as length goes. But yeah, someday I might like do anatomy of a scene or something like that and show like all the, stages it went through because it was pretty interesting stuff i like i was learning a lot about how i don't know not just pacing but just how scenes work how stories work you know i'm figuring it out i'm i'm becoming a writer for the first time and um and that's really exciting um but but i think the first thing is to recognize that hemingway was was right basically the first draft of everything is shit and um and when you when you finally accept that it's kind of liberating you know yeah yeah i really um i really like that idea i always call the first pass of everything i do the drunk pass because it feels like (laughs) somebody had too much to drink when they made it yeah exactly and you know it's like it's like you're you're thinking to yourself you're thinking about a story and and you're thinking i wonder what is the story really about and then you know the next step is like well let's write it and find out you know, you write the story, then you begin to figure out what it's about, and then you figure out what belongs and what doesn't. Right, certainly. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Awesome. Um, Scott, thank you for taking the time to join me. Um, I'm happy we were able to do this uh, well before the book's out. Uh, reminder, folks, Scott's new book is The Sculpture, and he'll be coming somewhere remotely close to you. Most world. likely, yeah. <laughs> it comes out. It comes out February third, uh, in a bunch of countries all at once. There we go. And uh, the tour dates will be on your website, scottmcleod.com. Yep. Yep. Pretty there soon. Um, yes. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Robin. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. Good talking to you. Cold freezing night. Oh, baby. Kill him. I wish I was a boy. Cold freezing night. Oh, baby. Ow, ow, ow. Come on, clap. Clap, clap. Alright, that's the A cold freezing night. Holy cow! Why do you always get away with things? It's not fair, I tell you. It's not fair. I want to blow your brains out with. I am gonna kill you. I need to make so you stay alive as long as I want you to, because so I can kill you. You are such an idiot, 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 idiot. I can kill you with a rifle, a shotgun, anyone I want to.
probably by cutting your toes out and working my way up towards your brain. Cold phrase at night. Oh, baby. Tougher than girls, I know that. And I wish I was a boy. He is that asshole. He is that asshole. He's putting a box on his asshole. I wish I was a boy. Kill him. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna rip your hair off and your balls. She's an idiot, ha ha ha. Yo, hi, man, y'all, the nerd, you're a nerd. <laughs>